Finally, I met with Dr. Cohn, and of course we began with his University of Chicago DECIDE trial evaluating induction chemotherapy. The trial started in 2004, accrued 280 patients, and the question was, does induction chemotherapy prior to chemotherapy radiation improve survival compared to chemotherapy radiation alone? Chemotherapy radiation has been a standard, arguably the standard for many patients with locally advanced head and neck cancer, and induction chemotherapy offered a lot of promise. Squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck is a chemo-responsive disease. We usually see responses in these patients with induction chemotherapy. We thought that by reducing distant failure, and there are some patients that are prone to distant failure, that we could improve survival in the setting of very good to excellent local regional control. And that's why we undertook this experiment. Bottom line, we did not see an improvement in overall survival. The overall survival in both arms was about 75%. It was actually about 74% in the control arm. It was about 77% in the induction chemotherapy arm. And I think we learned a lot, and it's important to dig a little bit deeper to know exactly what Desai told us. First of all, there was a difference in distant failure on Desai. Induction chemotherapy lowered the rates of distant metastasis. Could I just ask, was that statistically significant? It was. If you look at the site of first failure, there was a statistically significant difference in the induction chemotherapy arm. Because I thought, at least the numbers in the abstract, I didn't look at your slides, the disease-free survival was not statistically different. You're right. So we called it recurrence-free survival, and that was not different. But if we look specifically at patients who failed distantly, Hmm. There was a statistically significant difference there. And so, in other words, induction chemotherapy, in a sense, did what we thought it would do. It just didn't do enough of it. You know, in a way, I was going to say, well, kind of surprising slash disappointing. But on the other hand, I don't know, when you started to talk about it, I was thinking about, I know it's a completely different disease, but breast cancer, where there was so much hope about pre-op therapy, and then the NSABP trial comes along, nothing. Right. And the same thing, a lot of partial responses. Right. So I think what we learned was that we clearly need to do more. We need to learn a little bit more about who are the patients that are most prone to distant failure. The one thing that we didn't know when we started DECIDE is about HPV and the impact that it would have on prognosis. As I mentioned, the overall survival in the control arm was around 75%. We assumed an overall survival of 50% in these patients. And so what we didn't know about is the HPV epidemic and how it would impact overall survival as much as it did. And so going forward, you know, I think that there's room certainly to study induction chemotherapy Right now, I can't say that it's part of standard care. So do you know the HPV status on the DECIDE patients? We're doing that right now, actually. But it sounds like you're guessing it's going to be a high fraction? I'm guessing that because we enrolled predominantly in North America, and the eligibility criteria was for N2, N3 disease, and HPV-positive disease tends to present more with lymph node metastasis, that I'm going to guess that over half of our oropharynx cancer patients were HPV positive, and oropharynx cancer made up almost 70% of the study. What's the usual smoking status percent in the HPV patients? Most HPV positive patients are non-smokers or very light smokers. That's not to say that they're mutually exclusive. Smoking doesn't protect you from HPV, and HPV doesn't protect you from the ill effects of smoking. But because there's a different molecular carcinogenesis pathway to the cancer, people don't have to smoke. So 
there's much less smoking. So I guess if you assume it's not related, then it should be the same as the general population, 20%, I guess. I don't know. It should be, right. So the thinking there is that maybe what you need to do a trial with higher risk patients, non-HPV patients? Exactly. So the problem with a trial like that is it becomes more and more difficult to accrue. So we did see a very nice trend for patients who had very advanced nodal disease in favor of induction chemotherapy. So N2C, N3, not statistically significant, but very wide separation of the curves. The problem is that accruing to a study, if you were to say only accrue N3 patients, would take many, many years and would be really virtually impossible. Also, you know, I don't know, it just seems like in oncology in general, there's a lot less chemo trials, period. Pure chemo trials? Yeah, you're right. We have entered the era of targeted therapy, and those are the agents that are garnering the most excitement. So before we maybe talk about some of those things, I'm just kind of curious what your approach is right now outside of protocol setting in terms of using induction treatment in these patients. We do believe that induction still has a role outside of a clinical trial. And primarily, we use it for patients with N2C and N3 disease. We do believe that those patients are at highest risk for distant failure. It did look like in the DECIDE trial that they benefited, not statistically significant, but again, the curves really did separate nicely and widely. And we do believe that those patients can benefit from induction chemotherapy. Of course, if there's a patient who has an inherent delay in receiving radiation, maybe they need to have some dental work done, maybe they need to work out some other issues, that's a patient where we'll use induction. Because induction doesn't do any harm. It's just that we couldn't demonstrate that it improves survival. Again, you know, same thing happened with breast cancer, and people were thinking, well, you know, if it ends up being the same, why not just give it before? But people just don't do that. So I would think it's really not being done that much right now, period. I don't think so. Yeah, I would agree. So, well, as always in oncology, we want to talk about novel agents and pathways and things. But let me just ask any other sort of really clinically relevant chemo type papers or, you know, conventional modality type papers? Well, if we include cetuximab in that, then... I call cetuximab a biologic, but yeah, let's include, okay. <laughs> let's include it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's let's include around. it, uh, since it's been um, around a while. Yeah, if we include cetuximab, there's some interesting work going on. We did see the RTOG0522 data, which added cetuximab to cisplatin radiation. That was negative. So right now, again, no reason to add cetuximab to chemotherapy radiation, but there is ongoing work comparing cetuximab radiation to cisplatin radiation. We'll see that hopefully soon. There's ongoing work in the post-operative setting looking at cetuximab radiation. So there still is a lot of excitement around cetuximab, but right now the message is don't add it to chemotherapy radiation. Anything developing in terms of predictors of benefit and response with the EGFR antibodies, of course, in colon cancer, the KRAS has helped a little bit. Anything happening in head and neck? Well, we're unfortunately a little bit behind some of the other tumors. Lung cancer has mutations in the tarsine kinase and a nice predictive marker there. You mentioned colorectal cancer and KRAS. We don't have anything like that yet for head and neck cancer. KRAS mutations, for the most part, don't exist in head and neck cancer. They're pretty rare. Now, HRAS mutations, so again, the sequencing data showed us that HRAS may have an incidence or a prevalence of about 10% in head and neck cancer, somewhere around 5 to 10%. So that might be a little bit more relevant. And of course, then the PI3 kinase pathway may be relevant to head and neck cancer as well. Those are all stories in development, nothing definitive. 
There's a couple papers I saw on panitumumab at ASCO. What have you learned in general about these two EGFR antibodies differentially? Right. So, so far, the panitumumab data, as opposed to some of the cetuximab data, have been negative. So, whereas cetuximab was added to chemotherapy and recurrent metastatic disease, improved survival, the corresponding panitumumab study was negative, a nice trend towards an improvement overall survival, but did not meet its pre-specified statistical significance. So there may be real differences between these two drugs. And right now, cetuximab has the only positive data. One interesting thing we did see at ASCO, and this is a story that is developing and needs to develop, is the interplay between EGFR inhibition and HPV. And what I mean by that is that if we look at that panitumumab trial, combining it with chemotherapy, and when the investigators looked at HPV positive versus HPV negative, it appeared that only the HPV negative patients benefited from panitumumab, suggesting that in this case, the EGFR inhibitor did not help HPV positive patients. Now, it was a small part of the population. It was a obviously a retrospective analysis, and there were some questions about how exactly the HPV status was determined on that trial. So I would say hypothesis generating, but an area of controversy that I think we need to resolve soon. Do you think testing the HPV status is relevant or important in patients with head and neck cancer, and in what situations? I think it is. So it doesn't affect our management yet. Those trials are ongoing, or some of them have been completed, and the idea there is, can we de-intensify therapy for a group of patients we know are going to do, for the most part, well? But the risk is that if we do that outside of a clinical trial or outside of an investigational setting, that we may actually impact survival, and that's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to reduce survival by de-intensifying therapy. So clearly a clinical trial question. So HPV right now doesn't affect our management, but I think it's important prognostic data. Clearly HPV positive status is one of the strongest prognostic indicators we have. Study after study, analysis after analysis have all shown the same thing, that HPV positive disease does markedly better than their HPV negative counterparts. I think that's something important that patients want to know. I think that's something that the physician should know. And right now, we test all our oropharynx cancer patients for HPV and relay that information to the patient. Have any of the trials that have been put together or are ongoing right now stratified for HPV status? Right now, I don't know of a trial that doesn't do that. So right now, trials in locally advanced disease will either stratify for HPV status or enroll exclusively HPV-positive patients. How long has that been going on? That, I would say, ever since the presentation by Maura Gilson at ASCO, now three years ago, that really has become the standard for clinical trials. Getting back to EGFR antibodies, right now, how do they fit into your non-protocol management? EGFR antibodies, right now, for some patients in the locally advanced setting, especially the patients who are not good candidates for chemotherapy, Cetuximab and radiation, I think, is a very good treatment. In the recurrent metastatic setting, I think first line, all things being equal, patients should be offered the triplet, that is a platinum, 5-FU, and cetuximab. It's shown to increase survival. It's actually pretty well tolerated. It has a very good response rate. And I think it's, for most patients, the regimen of first choice. 
Any pearls that you give out to your fellows about managing and preventing the dermatologic consequences of these drugs? Yeah, I think the key for that is to get on top of it early. And in fact, even we don't go so far as using prophylaxis, but as soon as the patient says anything about their skin or any type of mucocutaneous manifestation, we try to begin to institute the tetracycline-based antibiotics, any topical agents that might be applicable. So as soon as the patient complains, we get right on it. And if we do that, we can almost always prevent the grade three manifestations. In terms of EGFR, where were you in terms of EGFR, TKIs? Rifatinib is an interesting drug. It's different from erlotinib in the sense that it's a pan-ERB inhibitor. So it inhibits not only EGFR, but HER2 and HER4. Because HER3 requires dimerization with one of the other family members, it de facto inhibits HER3 as well. So that's why it's called a pan-ERB inhibitor or pan-HER inhibitor. And as a single agent, it actually has some nice activity, likely equivalent to cetuximab. It can clearly be combined with chemotherapy and with radiation. And it's an agent that is right now in two large phase three trials, one in metastatic, one in locally advanced, and hopefully we'll see more data on afatinib in head and neck cancer in the near term. I guess one thing about that is it's, quote, an irreversible binder. I don't know how much difference that makes. What do you think? I think it might make a difference. I think it changes how the protein EGFR is recycled in the cell. The fact that it's irreversible means that the cancer cell has to produce more EGFR. And so that's a reason to think that it might be more effective than its predecessors. Any hints or hunches what the pathway is that it might be hitting? You know, you have HER2, in my mind, kind of like HER2 breast cancer kind of thing, and EGFR. Any idea which one, if either of those two, is responsible for its activity? I think, first of all, it's going to vary from tumor to tumor because we know that there's a lot of heterogeneity in head and neck. But I think for head and neck cancer targeting this pathway, the critical element is targeting EGFR. If you can't target EGFR effectively, then targeting the others is probably not going to work. And in my mind, we saw that with lapatinib. Lapatinib works in breast cancer. It's a very good HER2 inhibitor, but it's not a great EGFR inhibitor. As opposed to a fatinib, very good EGFR inhibitor. And then the inhibition of HER2 and HER3, I think, begin to play a role. Because HER2 and HER3 can do a few things. First of all, they can dimerize with EGFR. Secondly, they can turn on an important pathway, PI3 kinase. And thirdly, they can be responsible for resistance mechanisms to EGFR inhibitors. I think when you put those things together you begin to get an agent that might be more effective than existing EGFR inhibitors. Of course, we have to see if that's true. Any other new developments from a research point of view or emerging agents that, you know, look promising to you in head and neck? Yeah, there's quite a few, actually, and let me highlight some. Bevacizumab, not a new agent, but now is in a large phase three trial being combined with chemotherapy and recurrent metastatic disease. So those will be data that we're anticipating. And that hasn't been studied before? It hasn't, believe it or not. It's been studied in phase two studies, but never as a large phase three trial. That's interesting because I never would have thought about that. But on the other hand, I guess there's no reason not to. I mean, I don't know. You know, think of the kind of bloody type tumors that it seems to be more active in, you know, ovary, renal cell, et cetera. Would you think, thinking about the biology, that anti-angiogenic strategies like this would work? 
Well, it might. And if you believe that, especially bevacizumab, improves the delivery of chemotherapy to a tumor by normalizing the vasculature, then bevacizumab might be doing something. We know that we don't use it in squamous cell carcinoma of the lung because of toxicity. We seem to be able to avoid that in head and neck cancer by not enrolling patients who might be most prone to those serious bleeding events. And we'll see what the data show us, and hopefully that trial will get completed in the next year. Yeah, I mean, you kind of wouldn't think pathophysiologically it would cause bleeding. I mean, the lung thing seems like it's related to cavitation or something. Right, right. So, and I don't even think we really know whether it had activity in squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, do we? It was never tested because those efforts were aborted early when they saw those catastrophic bleeds. So just to touch briefly on thyroid cancer, not seen that often by oncologists, but they do see it sometimes. And I see a drug there that we've been hearing some interesting things about cabozantinib and prostate cancer and now some other tumors, pretty interesting data coming out. What do we know about it? I know you've been involved in looking at that and for that matter, other agents in thyroid. Right. And cabozantinib itself has an interesting story. It, of course, came out as a MET inhibitor. And in the phase one study, it was touted as a MET inhibitor. And pretty soon, medullary thyroid cancer patients were enrolled. And sure enough, a few of them began to respond. And so it generated a lot of interest for medullary thyroid cancer. In fact, the company executed a phase three study that was clearly positive. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Progression-free survival in the placebo arm was four months and in the cabozantinib arm was over 11 months, so almost a tripling of progression-free survival. We don't have mature overall survival data yet for this study, so we still have to wait for overall survival. The first report did not show a difference in overall survival, but clearly, clearly immature data there. I think that cabozantinib will actually get approved for medullary thyroid cancer based on the phase three trial. It's a drug that clearly works in a refractory patient population. Ironically, we have another drug approved for medullary thyroid cancer, and that's vandetinib, based on a very similar trial design, vandetinib versus placebo. Again, an improvement in progression-free survival, no improvement yet in overall survival. So a disease that really oncologists, I think, hardly see, a disease of about 2,000 people per year in the United States, is going to have two approved drugs in the very near term. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of basal cell cancer and the hedgehog <laughs> inhibitors, you know. Right. But, you know, I also hear sometimes when good drugs come out, these people come out of the woodwork, so to speak. So I don't know if that's going to happen. But what's the difference in actual biological activity of vandetinib and cabozantinib? Hard to say. They've never been compared head to head. But I mean, clinically, what do they do? What kinases do they hit? Yeah, so there's similarity in RET inhibition, although cabozantinib may be a, at least in the laboratory, is a more potent RET inhibitor. How that plays out in the clinic is hard to say. Cabozantinib inhibits VEGF R2, and so does vandetinib. And then their profiles are different. Vandetinib inhibits EGFR, Cabozantinib inhibits C-MET. It also inhibits PDGFR, FLT3, so it inhibits some other receptors. But cabozantinib is primarily RET, VEGF receptor, and MET. That's what we think is operational in medullary thyroid cancer. Vandetinib is RET, VEGF R2, and EGFR. Does medullary often or ever go to the bone? Because, you know, in prostate and now in renal and others, they've seen, quote, reversal bone scan changes and bone improvement. Do you see bone mets in medullary? 
You do. It's not as common as those other diseases. It's interesting that in differentiated thyroid cancer, where cabozantinib has been tried, investigators have seen the same thing as in prostate, that real, what appears like responses in bony mats. In patients with medullary thyroid cancer who have been enrolled on cabozantinib trials that have bony metastasis, we have seen the same phenomenon. Hmm. And clinical improvements? In medullary thyroid cancer? Yeah, I mean, bone pain improvement, things like that? Yes, yes, clearly. Hmm, Because that's what you hear, again, with prostate and maybe renal. You know, it kind of seems like cabozantinib ought to become available sometime. It's, I don't know exactly what it takes to have that happen, but if it were available, which one would you choose first, cabozantinib or vandetinib? Yeah, I have to say that I'm leaning towards cabozantinib for a few reasons, and certainly... I should say both agents appear to be effective and either one would be a good choice. But here's what I think is in favor of cabozantinib. First of all, there's no QT prolongation issue. And the one toxicity about vandetinib that worries me is QT prolongation because here's a group of patients that can have an indolent disease that can be relatively asymptomatic from their disease. And the last thing that I'd want to do is start an agent that has a life-threatening toxicity. So I hesitate a little bit with vandetinib, although admittedly the QT prolongation leading to serious arrhythmia is really a very rare event. So that's one thing. Two is that in both the phase one and the phase three trial with cabozantinib, we clearly enrolled patients that had been treated with vandetinib or sunitinib or other TKIs that still responded to cabozantinib. I'm not aware of similar data with the other TKIs, that is the other way around, that a patient had been on cabozantinib and then responded on vandetinib. So I think that there's something there when you can be on drug A, clearly progress, and then get put on drug B, in this case cabozantinib, and have a response. So that's encouraging. And then thirdly, the cabozantinib trial enrolled patients with progressive disease. So a more aggressive phenotype. And that was exemplified by the progression-free survival in the placebo arm, four months in the cabozantinib trial, 19 months in the vandetinib trial. So a more aggressive tumor, a more progressing patient population, and yet still able to demonstrate an improvement. What about the side effects and tolerability of these two agents? So that's something that vandetinib, I think, probably favors vandetinib. In terms of day-to-day side effects, vandetinib probably better tolerated. Rash is the biggest issue. Diarrhea can be an issue. For cabozantinib, at what will be the approved dose, many patients on the clinical trial, in fact, the majority of patients, require dose reduction, mostly around hand-foot syndrome, diarrhea, fatigue. Now, once you do get on the right dose for the patient, it appears that you can treat a patient for a very long period of time. But the MTD of cabozantinib for many patients is difficult to tolerate. Hmm. Okay, why don't you talk about sort of some day-to-day clinical issues I'll start out by asking you something I've been asking investigators in general, just because I didn't realize this was happening. How often do you get an email or a phone call from an oncologist in practice who says, can I just quickly run a case by you? The patient's probably not going to see you, but just want to see what you think. Almost on a daily basis. That's what I've been hearing, and I'm, yeah. it's really interesting, and too bad that all the rest of us don't get to hear the answers that you give. In terms of head and neck cancer, what are sort of maybe say the top three or four things that you get asked about? 
Yeah. And I should say, I like being asked. I don't mind it whatsoever. And if I can, you know, help somebody out in the community or in practice, uh, I'm more than happy to do that. So what are the most common things? I think the induction question is still there. So should I give this patient induction? Should I add chemotherapy to radiation in this patient with, you know, a relevant scenario? When do I use cetuximab in recurrent and metastatic disease? And I have an HPV positive patient should I manage them differently? Should I offer them different type of therapy? Those are probably the most common. So I asked you maybe to put together some sort of clinical scenarios, and we've already talked about induction therapy, but you also brought up this question of, you know, again, an HPV positive patient, and you commented on the scenario of a younger non-smoker with a T2N2B cancer of the tonsil. Maybe you could sort of take that clinical scenario and talk about how you sort of think it through. Right. And those are exactly the type of calls and emails that I get. In fact, I think this one may have been from an email. So the first thing is you want to verify the stage and the diagnosis, and that goes without saying. Then for many of these patients, we'll consider organ-preserving therapy, and that is chemotherapy radiation up front. There is a push and somewhat data-driven to do more and more minimally invasive surgery in these patients. HPV-positive patients tend to present with smaller tumors, smaller primary tumors, that metastasize early in the course to lymph nodes. And with those smaller tumors, some have advocated a minimally invasive surgical approach, so transoral robotic surgery, for instance, that can remove the primary tumor and then addressing the neck with either a neck dissection or chemotherapy radiation. That's an approach that has to be validated in prospective studies, but that's something that certainly a lot of people are talking about and something to pay attention to in the near term. Let's say for whatever reason you decide not to do minimally invasive surgery, the expertise may not exist at your center, the patient may not be a good candidate, whatever, and you proceed with chemotherapy radiation. Could I just ask before you go any further, I jotted down the term transoral robotic surgery I personally haven't heard of it. Maybe everybody else has, but what is it? Yeah, so this is really a technique that uses the robot, the da Vinci robot, the same robot that's used in other cancers and non-malignant diseases. Yeah, prostate most notably. And it really was developed very nicely by investigators at the University of Pennsylvania using it in cancers of the oropharynx, primarily in cancers of the oropharynx. Other cancers can be addressed by it, but because getting to these tumors requires an articulation that the human hand simply cannot do, the robot really serves the surgeon quite well here. And what it essentially allows is an approach to the tumor without having to go through the soft tissue or the mandible, the muscles, the blood vessels, etc., from the outside. And so it effectively, it allows an easier approach to the tumor without all the morbidity associated with getting to the tumor. It makes total sense, but how many surgeons out there are doing it? More and more, all the time. There are special courses now to learn minimally invasive surgery. There's actually a whole process that one can do to get certified, specifically in transoral robotic surgery. A couple of our surgeons have gone through that, and we're certainly doing it at the University of Chicago. And so it's an approach that's gaining favor across the country. The question becomes, does it add a benefit? Does it improve, either does it improve survival? Does it improve morbidity? Does it improve quality of life? And those are questions that really are best studied prospectively. And that's being done now. You yourself, just sort of seeing these patients after the fact, can you decipher a difference? I think that 
if you use it on the right patient, and I can define that for you in a moment if you want, if you use it on the right patient and you can eliminate another modality, then it's a great therapy. What I see, unfortunately, in practice and at many centers, including sometimes our own, is that it's being used on a patient that's not the best candidate for a minimally invasive approach, and then you're not really saving the patient anything. So who's the right patient? In my mind, the right patient is a patient with a small tumor with very little to no lymph node involvement, so that that approach of minimally invasive surgery, let's say for a T2N0 tumor of the oropharynx, means that they can have surgery and they're virtually done. So no radiation for that tumor, no chemotherapy, a very minimal morbidity surgical procedure, and that's it. Sounds good. Anything else you want to say about management of this situation you talked about with the T2N2B lesion? Yeah. So the next step, once you've decided on a non-surgical approach, is what to use in terms of chemotherapy radiation. And there are many different regimens that can be thought about. Probably the most commonly used and best studied regimen is a regimen of cisplatin radiation. It still is, for a patient like this, the standard would still be single daily fractionated radiation with high dose cisplatin given every three weeks. But there are changes or other regimens that I think may improve the delivery or the morbidity. And one of them is accelerated fractionation radiation to complete in six weeks so that only two doses of cisplatin have to be given. There are many people around the country that are advocating for weekly cisplatin at, say, 40 milligram per meter squared rather than the 100 milligram per meter squared every three weeks. That hasn't been a validated approach in locally advanced head and neck cancer, although there are phase three studies in nasopharynx to show that, in fact, that does work and works quite well. So there are different ways to apply chemotherapy and, in fact, to apply radiation in a patient like this. But for the most part, it's going to be cisplatin radiation. Anything else you want to say about this case situation? No, I I think, again, HPV positive, they're going to likely do well, a very good prognosis. Attention to long-term toxicities and long-term morbidity is also quite important in these patients. This case was based on email, but I'm just kind of curious when you actually meet patients in this situation, non-smokers who are told they have this disease, including the HPV status, what are some of the sort of psychosocial things that come up in that situation with them and maybe within their families? Yeah, there's a lot of issues that can come up and a lot of issues that are worth discussing. Something that comes up quite often is, what about my spouse? What about my partner? We know that this is a sexually transmitted disease. There's no doubt about that. Just like any HPV-related cancer, HPV-related oropharynx cancer is a sexually transmitted disease. So the natural question is, well, is my partner at risk? Where did I get this? When did I get it? So first of all, it's a disease that people acquired decades ago. This wasn't from recent contact. And as we talked about before, the virus doesn't get cleared and eventually sets up the carcinogenic process. In terms of the partner, we have yet to define exactly what their risk is. It is probably increased a little bit, but now we have to put that into perspective. We're talking about a cancer that's relatively uncommon and a small increase in risk. So for the partner, the risk of contracting an HPV-positive oropharynx cancer is actually quite small. And we don't suggest that the partner does anything differently. You know, they should continue, of course, to maintain their contact with their primary care physician and routine health maintenance. At the most, if they're really concerned, we'd advise them to go see an otolaryngologist 
just to have a thorough examination. But even that, they don't absolutely have to do. What's the gender breakdown of the HPV-positive patients? Curiously, it's still a 3 to 1 male to female ratio. So similar to the tobacco-related HPV negative, that is about 2 to 1, 3 to 1, HPV positive is also 3 to 1, and we don't have a good explanation for that. I don't know why that is. Is the thinking that when you say it's sexually transmitted that this is a you know, direct you know, through oral sex, or is it a systemic effect? No, it's direct contact. So it's some sort of oral contact with the virus itself. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about larynx cancer. And again, you brought up the clinical scenario of a T4N1 lesion. Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, I wanted to bring this one up because it's somewhat controversial on how to manage a patient like this. So this is a case of an advanced larynx cancer patient, as you said, T4N1. And especially for T4 larynx cancer patients, the dogma for a long time has been that they won't respond well to chemotherapy radiation. So surgery should be the treatment of choice. Now, of course, surgery means removing the larynx, so a laryngectomy, a pharyngectomy in some patients, and the loss of speech and swallow function. And moreover, these patients with T4N1 will still require chemotherapy radiation as adjuvant therapy. So we decided quite some time ago to turn that around and say, well, why don't we apply chemotherapy radiation upfront to these patients? Let's see how they do. Let's see if they respond. And in some patients, we may be able to avoid surgery altogether. And so we did that under a clinical trial. And in fact, that was completely true, even in large volume T4. So these were, in some patients, T4 tumors that had not only invaded the cartilage, but had gone right through the cartilage, destructive lesions. And we applied chemotherapy radiation. We were able to eliminate the tumor. We were able to restore function with the majority of patients having at least the ability to communicate. It may not be a normal voice, but the ability to communicate with the majority of patients being able to maintain their nutrition orally. And so here is where our center and some other centers around the country are beginning to separate from this view that all T4 larynx cancer patients need surgery up front. And some of them really can be treated with chemotherapy radiation quite successfully. I was just thinking the idea of invasion of cartilage Sort of what happens there? Does it just scar up? It seems like kind of a weird sight. Yeah, so what happens essentially is that when the tumor gets eliminated, when the tumor responds and, you know, effectively that insult is gone, the cartilage does scar. The cartilage doesn't grow back very well, but if there's structure still remaining of the larynx, the patient can have, it's not going to be a normal voice, but the patient can have a voice. Seems like a huge difference in a quality of life point of view. We think it is. And then, of course, if chemotherapy radiation isn't successful, it's the same operation on the back end. It's still a laryngectomy as salvage. So we really feel quite strongly that at least an attempt at chemotherapy radiation is valid. What do you think is going on today, you know, in general in this regard right now across the country? I think for the most part, the dogma holds true that T4 larynx gets an operation and then adjuvant chemotherapy radiation. And really, I think this is a group of patients that can be treated in the opposite manner quite successfully. Hmm, interesting. How many cases of this are there a year? Yeah, now the number of cases is dropping because people, you know, 20 years ago got the message to stop smoking. So exactly T4N1, we're probably talking about several thousand cases a year. There's still a lot of people. 
Still a fair number, yeah. And, you know, again, you think about it from a quality of life point of view, it's too bad something can't be done about it. I don't know. Uh, seems like maybe a little education. I don't know, maybe some more research. Well, more prospective research always helps. I think there are advocates for this approach that are trying to get the message out there. There are people listening. It's just, it's hard to change practice. Hmm, interesting. Any other clinical scenarios you want to comment on either in head and neck or thyroid cancer that we haven't talked about? Well, for head and neck, we haven't talked about recurrent metastatic disease, and that's probably worth talking about. We talked about the results briefly of the extreme study that added cetuximab to platinum 5-FU, positive trial improving overall survival from about seven and a half months to 10 months. And what I've seen in practice is that that regimen hasn't really been utilized as much as I thought. And I'm not sure that there's a good rationale not to use it, other than if you feel that the patient wouldn't tolerate a triplet. I've heard people say, well, I want to reserve cetuximab for the second line, that it's a palliative setting, and I don't want to use everything right away. I know I'm not going to cure this patient. But actually, if you look at the data, if you look at progression-free survival, if you look at response rate, if you look at the quality of life data, all of those data would favor the utilization of the three agents. And in my mind, I think our best shot to treat the disease is the first shot in recurrent metastatic. And really, I think it makes sense to use that triplet regimen. It's not wrong not to do it. I don't want to criticize people's practice if they're not doing it. But as I look at the data, that triplet regimen is quite effective.